Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. I'm Kurt Parker. Take out your Bibles, if you would, and be ready to open them up. We are in a continuing study today in Second Corinthians 8 and 9. We've been doing some background and filling in. And if you know that song, you can sing those things in your mind. I'll leave that up there just for a second because I enjoyed that so much this week when I saw it. God's plan for a healthy church, a study through the books of First and Second Corinthians. In particular, our, our study has been, as we moved into Second Corinthians 8, uh, material possessions. We've gone through and laid some groundwork so we can understand those two chapters. They're so intense, and Paul noticed such an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the church that he used them as an example. And so we are now going to move in, into those areas this week. But I hope you were in the Word this week. I hope that you spent some time each day doing that. My encouragement always to you is to do that thing precisely, to uh, take uh, your your version on a tablet or take the trifold that we have in the back, be in the Word each day so you'll know what the Word says, you'll understand uh, how it applies to you, holds up the holy standard before you, you know how you're supposed to conduct yourself, it helps promote you in praise, the Lord has, Holy Spirit has one will, you can know it as you work through your way through the Word, so be in it. So if you're just touching base with the message uh, once a week, and that's um, where you're getting your food, then you're starving this morning as much as you would be if you'd eaten one time last week and you're getting ready to eat again. Just a few little observations from the world about money. Money, if it does not bring you happiness, will at least help you be miserable in comfort. Helen Gurley Brown. Money is better, better than poverty, if only for financial reasons, Woody Allen. Money is not the most important thing in the world. Love is. Fortunately, I love money. Jackie Mason. The safest way to double your money is to fold it over and put it in your pocket. A bank is a place that will lend you money, Bob Hope says, if you can prove that you don't need it. The trick is to stop thinking of it as your money, IRS auditor says. Money is the best deodorant, Elizabeth Taylor says. Oscar Wilde, anyone who lives within their means suffers from a lack of imagination. Every day I get up and look through the Forbes list of the richest people in America, and if I'm not there, I go to work. Robert Orban said that. Money will buy you a fine dog, but only love will make it wag its tail. Richard Feynman. If you think nobody cares if you're alive, try missing a couple of car payments, Earl Wilson noticed. There's a very easy way to return from a casino with a small fortune. Go there with a large one. Car sickness is the feeling you get when the monthly payment is due. Always borrow money from a pessimist. He doesn't expect to be paid back. If if you lend someone $20 and never see that person again, it was probably worth it. Too many people spend money they haven't earned to buy things they don't want to impress people they don't like. Budget, a mathematical confirmation of your suspicions. The waste of money cures itself, for soon there is no more to waste. People are living longer than ever before, a phenomenon undoubtedly made necessary by the 30-year mortgage, Doug Larson. If all the economists were laid end-to-end, they'd never reach a conclusion, George Bernard Shaw. Last one, a word contest from the Washington Post, intoxication. 
That's euphoria at getting a refund from the IRS, which lasts until you realize it was your money to start with. Interesting observations, some of which no doubt are contrary to exactly what we've been studying in the Word of God, which explains very clearly why the world is in the position that it's in. Today, Lord willing, we're going to finish up laying the groundwork of our study through 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. It's my desire that uh, this New Testament standard for giving, where we've spent about 10, this is our 10th Sunday doing this background after we introduced the book, looking at very to- various topics which find their source uh, in Scripture's spiritual instructions for a material world. And we've seen a lot of those, and you probably noticed we didn't even touch half of the passages we could have looked at. Uh, no doubt you've been in the in the Word sometime this week, and you've seen passages we didn't even touch. And the Bible talks about it quite often. Uh, Jesus talked about money and material things twice as much as he talked about heaven and hell. So obviously it's an issue with people, and so he wanted to make sure we had the correct perspective. My hope, of course, is that the study that we've done as a background has been helpful to you, and it's been a rich time for you, no pun intended. And we looked at wealth from from the Scriptures, where it comes from, uh, who owns it, all of it, Jesus and money, how do I know if I love money, is money moral, how does God give money to people, and then the last few, uh, wealth of my family, which is where we are now. But certainly we can see by now that it, this is God's idea, so we're not forcing into the scripture something that we perhaps have an idea of, we, we're just reading God's ideas about how it's supposed to work, it's his desire, uh, to, we know that, to bless those that are his, and we can see that it is his desire to supply for our needs, the very first message we had with you, uh, if you found that you're struggling and, and you don't know really what to do and you, you're upside down and you're spending credit cards, you may be surprised to know that God already has a plan to take care of you. He's promised it over and over again. And he has a plan for our future. He wants us to rely on him for all of that. He doesn't want us to place our trust or our hope in any of those things. And he wants us to abundantly share. And, and we don't have to convince him to do what he does. He's already said he'll do what he's going to do. And, and we saw last time, maybe you've seen all of that and everything we've talked about over last, last week's, uh, up to last week, eight messages and, and you've seen all that knowledge and, but that just doesn't simply seem to apply to your life. You're, you're thinking, well, I, I see this from scripture, but that doesn't really describe what we don't really have anything. We can't do anything. And so, uh, last time we looked at some questions that can help identify your situation and, and allow you to evaluate perhaps what's going on from the scripture's perspective. And I just gave you a few things that you can ask yourself and then some things where that you can perhaps line yourself up where it needs to be. But maybe it's because you're selfish. Maybe you haven't given enough away. Now you don't have enough. Uh, you don't have anything that, in order to take care of your needs because you consumed it all on yourself. Uh, maybe you're impulsive. You see it and you want it and you buy it. And so there's never any left at the end of the month. In fact, the month runs out and you still have, or the money runs out and you still have lots of month left. Or perhaps you're lazy. And Scripture has so much to say about that. You won't apply yourself. You don't work hard unless somebody's watching you, or there's you can kind of tell there's a big list of things that you always make an excuse why you didn't get done. Uh, and so maybe, maybe that's the thing, or maybe it's a willful spirit. Maybe many people have counseled you about how to manage uh, those things that you have, and you're just going to do what you're going to do, and it doesn't really matter, and you're going to get in the debt and, then, and try to consolidate, and you just be right back in debt again over and over and over and just won't learn from the mistakes, and you're just willful. Scripture has a lot to say about that, and that will create a shortfall constantly for you if you're that way. Uh, maybe it's indulgence. Uh, you have to have the best or the biggest or, or or the shiniest or whatever. Maybe you're just a schemer. We saw in Scripture, schemers always uh, end up in poverty and rags. In other words, you're always looking for the next big play, uh, planning but rarely doing. Or maybe that you've discovered your motivation for having more is just to elevate your own life. Uh, maybe that's why the Lord's trying to get your attention. You're just trying to elevate your life. It's not that you're in need. You're just trying to do more so you can have more. 
uh, or perhaps, and we, we talked about this right at the end, perhaps you're paying for a time that you robbed God. So over a long period of your, of your life, you didn't give anything. You consumed it all in yourself, and you, you weren't sharing and giving away. And we saw this, all that background in the Old Testament and in the New. And so if you missed any of that, you can catch it on Spotify, uh, Brian Journey, or you can go on the Brian Journey uh, YouTube page and you can watch those. I would encourage you to do that. This is a serious issue. It plagues people constantly, and it's never there's never an end to the battle, if you will. It's always going to be there. You're always going to have to struggle, evaluate, bring bring logical and wisdom, uh, logical thoughts and wisdom to how to do uh, what you should do with what the Lord's provided. And then the last one was maybe God's trying to just teach you something. Maybe it's not an issue where you've got a sin issue in your life. Maybe he's got you in, in a place where things are short so that you can learn some valuable lessons, maybe to increase your prayer life. Maybe it's that he wants you to focus on some other things. And so it's hard to know exactly what the issues may be. I pray that the Lord this week was able to reveal some of those things to you and how they may combine, because some of them may be combined together to creating that situation in your life where what you're experiencing does not match God's plan for your provision. And so... Uh, we just know the Lord's heart on the matter. And I think that that's important. If you don't, I'm not sure how, uh, it all works out, but we can just have great confidence in just trusting Him. And Psalm 34, 8 is one of my favorites about that. It's taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints, for to those who fear Him, there is no what? There is no want. Young lions do lack and suffer hunger. And that's not what you would expect, right? You would expect they can do what they need to do. But they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. What's it mean, taste and see that the Lord is good? It just means look at his commands, see what he said about what you're supposed to do with what you have, because that's what we're looking at now, and then do them. And see if he doesn't follow through with everything he said that he would do. Now, today, as we said, we're going to look at the biblical priorities for the use of money. So we last week we asked some questions. If you're not in the position you, you know that the Bible says you should be in, uh, what do we do? And, and so we were able to get on the right path. And then today is the last installment, biblical priorities for the use of money. In other words, as the Lord gives it to you, mainly through work and then through some other things, uh, what are the priorities that the Bible gives for how you're supposed to use it? So you're going to line your life up and the desire is to take everything that we've learned up until now, just kind of consolidate that and then move into this, this message and say, okay, this is what we're supposed to be doing. This is how we should be looking uh, at what we have as it comes in. And they are going to come by way of the priority that the scriptures seem to place on them. So we'll start like we did in how does God give what he provides to you. And the first one was work, not the most popular one, but that's the way that the scripture says is the main way God gives you what you need. But uh, the emphasis then will be here, and it's going to blend well with what we've understood from the principles that we've studied. And, and as we look at our first priority, you, you may find that these are surprising to you. Uh, but the passage will start with this pretty clear, 1 Timothy 5, 8. And I'll put some up, and then I'm going to have you turn to some, because some are so important that you read them in your copy of God's Word, and you underline them, make some notes, highlight them, whatever, so that you can go back and read them again. They are just full of instruction. But these ones, I think, you'll find uh, are very, very important. So first priority, if anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And so our priority number one, if you have you have a bullet in your hand, you can flip it over, you've got some notes, and if that's helpful for you, your takeaway is, number one, we must provide for the needs of our household. We saw over and over again, if you don't work, you don't eat. And, and here we see you're to provide for the needs of your own, especially for those in your household. And people will often say, you mean giving isn't first? I mean, I thought you would say, you know, uh, giving is first. I think everybody thinks the pastor is going to say giving is first. Okay. 
like somehow that's going to benefit me in some way. I'm, I'm after your blessing. I'm after you bringing your life into line with what the scripture says, how you're supposed to manage, so that you can be blessed. The Lord has said he would bless you. So I just want to be clear about that. People say, well, you spend a lot of time talking about money. Actually, I don't. I've been here 11 years, talked about it twice. So this is an important issue. The Bible says we have to provide for the needs of our household. It doesn't start with giving. And here's why. What we're going to see in these first few priorities, they all have to do with testimony. And this is very consistent with the Old Testament. If you remember, all the way through the Old Testament, just in Isaiah 1, you know, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me? What is it that you're coming to these assemblies? Why do you trample my courts? What does he want them to do? Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. So, in other words, I've set up the sacrificial system for you to follow it, and the assemblies for you to come and share. What was the problem? They weren't obeying. They were going through the motions but they weren't doing what the Lord wanted. And so he didn't want any of the other stuff either. See, Testimony is the main issue. It doesn't matter how much you give if you're if the way that the, 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 the culture and the people around you look at you and just think, what a terrible testimony. Your family, not taking care of your family, particularly that's our topic, 1 Timothy 5.8, then you've missed all of it. The Lord doesn't want all the other stuff. What he wants you to do is begin to obey him in the areas where he's instructed you, see. And so our passage is very clear. So I want you to stick with me. If we don't provide for those that are ours, we're worse than an unbeliever. That's a pretty bad, that's a pretty bad tag to hang on us. If we aren't meeting those needs, it doesn't matter what else we're doing. The Lord's evaluation is very clear and your testimony to your family and to the watching world is tarnished and that's not what the Lord wants you to do. Psalm 51, 17. The sacrifices of the Lord are a what? Remember? Broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. These are the things that are acceptable to the Lord. In other words, I set up the sacrificial system, the Lord said. But the main sacrifice I want you to do is a contrite heart. In other words, come before me humbly and start doing what I say. That's what I really want from you. And then you can follow through with the sacrifices and the joy that comes along with with the acts of obedience. See, the worship of obedience. So as a provider, then, you have to figure out how to do that. And the Lord may have to give you wisdom. You may need a couple different ways of income so that you can provide for the needs of your family. But... That's your job. Provide for the needs of your family. It has to do with your testimony. Number two, second priority, uh, and we're going to move rapidly through this so we can close this this time of setting some foundation. But our second priority, uh, we must use our money to pay our debt. We must use our money to pay our debt. And again, I'm not hitting giving yet because this is testimony. A house, a car, if they're on payment plans, you're to do that as you've agreed to do it. Nothing wrong with a mortgage debt. At least it's a stable asset, if not appreciating one. And, beloved, a mortgage, as opposed to having an apartment, a mortgage uh, qualifies as saving for the future. A mortgage is planning for the needs of your family. In fact, a mortgage is the biggest investment most families in America will ever make. Paying that house off, having that asset, which provides for the needs of your family and helps provide uh, using your income wisely, uh, is very important. So nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with having a debt to pay. And we're going to talk about more about that in a minute because there are some uh, well-meaning but wrong financial advisors who are out there say you should never be in any kind of debt. Well, I understand the principle behind that. However, that does not align with scriptural principles. And we'll look at that in just a minute. Now, just a few careful, clarifying passages to help us assimilate this teaching. Turn to Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Will you do that? Romans 13, 1. I want to clarify... Uh, some things and get some framework in place so that you feel comfortable. Uh, maybe this is some, some of this is new to you. 
But this is a very important passage of Romans. Romans really the cathedral of the New Testament. We've taught through it all the way, cover to cover, uh, in the letter of Romans. We may do it again sometime in the future. But the, the, the main issue is here is that uh, there's some instruction, really, as as you start Romans 12, you, you really have these these greater and greater circles being drawn around you. The farther out you go from your, your private life, things, how you're supposed to interact with people and your enemies and all that. And then you get to this point right here in Romans 13, how you're going to interact with the government. And so Romans 13, verse 1, look there if you would. Read along in your copy of God's Word. Every person is to be subject to the government authorities. So who does that include? That's right. For there is no authority except from God, and those who exist, which exist, are established by God. So good governments, bad governments, realize when this was written, a lot of bad government. Okay. The, the, the Caesars were were wicked, very wicked. Okay. So um, those who exist are established by God. Therefore, verse 2, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Three, for rulers are not a cause for fear for good behavior, but for evil. You only have no fear of authority, do what is good. You'll have praise from the same. Four, verse four, it's a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it's a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So there's authority set up in government, in laws and, 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 uh, pr- criminal prosecution, and, and God has, catch this, ordained all of this, He endorses all of this. Now, this is applicable to any number of current situations today, which no doubt your brain has jumped right to that. And I don't think it should surprise you that the majority of anarchists call for the disbanding of police and burning down of courthouses and all that life. Well, because government is authority, and the Lord has set it up. And you should fear if you're doing wrong. That's precisely what they don't want to do, right? Some um, problematic mayors in some cities don't want to fear. Well, that's a problem, isn't it? Because man is wicked. Our basic premise is man is wicked and separate from God and under a curse. And every action he's going to do, apart from the intervening of the Lord by the Holy Spirit, is going to be wicked. And so government is set both to do good and to bring fear. So there's nothing wrong with that. Now, I don't want to, I don't want to keep going down that road because we've got a lot to talk about, but there's much to apply here in that area. But here's the passage I want us to look at. Look at verse 5. Therefore, it's necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. So you don't violate a well-informed conscience, which just means that it's God's will for you to do it, not just because you can be punished for not doing it, but why? But because you want to obey God from the heart, so you obey, and you do the things you're supposed to do. Now, verse 6, for because of this, so in other words, for the same reasons, fear of punishment and good testimony, because both of those are in play here, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Verse 7, render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So however it applies, whatever the position is, we're supposed to render that. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Now, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another is... As a side note, it's not talking about never buying anything over time. Certainly times and places to do that. But it's not talking just about that. It's just saying pay what you owe, pay it on time. And so the only thing you owe to one another is continually the debt of love. So you don't have anything outstanding, including love. 
And there are certainly times and places to do things over time. Scripture is full of those examples, and I'm going to cruise through some of the illustrations rather quickly because it's not our main point, but I want you to see this because, uh, as I said, some well-meaning but in error uh, counselors have said a number of different things, and I just want you to get the idea uh, where it actually is and how it falls in Scripture. So Exodus 22:25, and I think you're going to get the you're going to get this right away, and just the essence of these verses. But verse 25 says, "If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you're not to act as a creditor to him. You shall not charge him interest." So what's assumed there? Somebody is going, and they are what? They are borrowing money from someone, and because they're called both called by the name of the Lord, we've looked at this before. So Lord, one of the ways the Lord does not choose to give you income is by charging interest to another believer. But here it says, if you're going to loan money to your people, so it's going to, it's going on. Uh, somebody needs to expansion. They're doing some kind of, uh, you know, reseeding. Perhaps they had a hard, uh, crop or something happened, whatever. And then they need some money, so they borrow, and that's not unusual. The Lord just says, don't charge them interest. Now, Leviticus chapter 25, verse 37, uh, 35 through 37. Now, in the case of a countryman of yours becomes poor, and his means with regard to you falter. So what's this, what's that assuming? So he owes you something, and he's not able to what? He's not able to pay it back. So he's borrowed something, and what are you supposed to do? Then you are to sustain him. Uh, do not take usurious interest from him, but revere your God and your countrymen and live with him. You shall not give him your silver interest nor your food again. Now we looked at that. I just want to draw your attention to that first part of that. So somebody has borrowed something and they can't pay it back. And that happens sometimes. You're, you're in trouble and you owe, you owe something to a brother, uh, and you can't pay. So it's assuming borrowing for an expansion, for a time when someone's crop failed, whatever. And we see it repeated. The instruction we understand concerning ways that God provides what we need. He doesn't endorse getting wealth from interest charged to others who, who are called by his name. How about Nehemiah 5 7? I consulted with myself and contended with the nobles and the rulers and said to them, so what's, the, what's in Nehemiah, what's, what's the, uh, what's the context? So they've been, they've been in Babylon and they've come back to the land. And so they're there. The land, of course, had been devastated by Babylonians and, and part of the wall was down and all that. They're moving back in. They're starting to set up their, uh, you know, the Israeli culture again. The Lord has given them an opportunity to be back. And Nehemiah is looking at what's going on, and he consulted with myself. So in other words, he says, man, what is going on? He's having a conversation. I'm watching what these people are doing. And then I contended with the nobles and rulers and said to them, what are they doing? You're exacting usury each from his brother. Therefore, I had a great assembly against them. What was happening? They moved back into the land and did began to do the exact same thing that they did before they were kicked out of the land. They were gaining money on each other by charging interest for the things that had been borrowed between them. So, But what's going on? People are borrowing. Some had more, some had less. Somebody wanted to expand. They borrowed, and then that person is charging them interest, and the Lord's like, no. And he says through Nehemiah, hey, give them a hard time. So they're back from captivity shortly after the return. They're borrowing from each other. That's not a problem, but they are increasing their wealth at the expense of each other. That's a big problem, and one of the reasons why they were chastened by the Lord to begin with. And then Psalm 15.5 how about this? He does not he does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. Who who can stand in the holy hero of the Lord? That's the question the psalmist says. Who can be in his presence? And then one of the ways you can be in his presence is you lend your money, but you don't do it at interest, and it implies that there's some borrowing going on. Psalm 37.21, the wicked borrow and does not pay back, but the righteous is gracious and gives. And this goes along with Romans 13, which tells us to pay what we owe. If you're wicked, you don't pay what you owe. See? 
If you're, you're letting stuff build up, you've got payments that you're behind on, you're not making sure you're covering what your debt is, and so uh, that's wickedness. You borrow and you don't pay back. But what's implied there, uh, actually it's just clearly stated, they borrowed. And there wasn't a problem with borrowing, was there? It wasn't a problem with borrowing. The problem was you didn't pay what you owe when you owed it. So no impingement on borrowing, just on defaulting by borrowing. Matthew 5.42 Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. It's a godliness trait there. If you have it, right? The general principle we saw from the word. If you have it and someone needs it, a brother or sister in Christ, and you can afford to lend it to them and they can afford to pay it back, then lend it to them if you want to, just without interest. Allow them to do some things and they pay you back and that's a great thing. No, no problem with that. Give him, him, give to him who asks of you. Does it say, and he's wicked for asking? No. The Bible knows that this is how business is done. They're not, uh, they're not chastened for that. So if you have it and they need it and you can afford to lend it to them and they can afford to pay it back, then lend it to them. And this one too, if you have it and they need it and you can afford it and they can't afford to pay it back, then what are you to do? You just give it to them. And that, that's the idea in Luke 6.34, see? The, the, the whole understanding there, let me go back. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? In other words, you're lending to someone who you know can pay you back. You're just doing regular business. That's not a problem. They're coming. They need, they need a loan. You've got it. No big deal. Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. The Lord gives good gifts even to wicked people. They live here, part of common grace. It's much of the stuff we enjoy, they get to enjoy too. And who gives all of those things? The Lord does. And and here is the overriding principle concerning lending and interest that we saw a few weeks ago. Deuteronomy 23.19 You shall not charge interest to your countrymen, interest on money on food, or anything that may be loaned at interest. It just kind of takes it a very wide swath here. You may charge interest to a foreigner, but to your countrymen you shall not charge interest, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land which you are about to enter to possess. And then a little more clarification in the very next chapter, Deuteronomy 24.10. When you make your neighbor a loan of any sort, you shall not enter his house to take his pledge. You shall remain outside, and the man to whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. If he's a poor man, you shall not keep his pledge. So it's a down payment. You're not supposed to keep it if he's poor and he really needs it. And when the sun goes down, you shall surely return his pledge to him, that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you, and it will be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. So there's some borrowing, there's some lending going on, and it's in righteousness and in justness and fairness, and the Lord doesn't have any problem with that. And he gives instructions to he gives instructions to the lender. He gives instructions to the borrower. And as long as you're conducting yourself in a godly manner, there's no problems. No, there's no uh, no impingement on any of that. And there are quite a few more, but I think we get it. Once again, whether or not and here's the thing: whether or not you should incur debt can be governed by questions we looked at last time. Whether or not you should be taking out a loan of some kind. You need to help identify your family's position, uh, what your motivation is, as it relates to God's wisdom on material things. And then you can know whether you should do it or not. And so again, debt's not forbidden by the Lord. 
In fact, it's so common, the Lord just gives uh, conduct rules as it goes uh, between business people and, and people who need it, just as the borrower is slave to the lender. And in that sense, it just means you don't have the option of not repaying. You have to repay. See, And that's not unusual, is it? Because it's a wicked who borrows and doesn't repay. And Romans chapter 13 said, Oh, no outstanding debt, except that continual debt of love. So, these mesh together very well. And I think we can understand that. So, again, debt's not forbidden. Just make sure that you're doing what you should do. We use our money to pay our debts. That's the second thing. It has to do with testimony. See, Pay what you owe when you owe it as you've agreed to do it. If you have a debt that's overdue, then if you're sitting here right now and you have a debt that's overdue, then sell an asset and dispose of the debt. You don't let that pile up. That's the whole point of the next illustration here, which is a wonderful illustration of God's provision and some of the ways that he's involved in supplying our needs. I'd like you to turn to 2 Kings 4.1, will you? 2 Kings 4.1. Hope you've come through that already in your, your time in the Word this year and you've been in the Old Testament and you've come through this this marvelous, one of my favorite stories in uh, in the Kings. But 2 Kings 4.1, it's a worthy inclusion in our examples, but I want you to actually look there because it's just so enriching. It's a blessing to you to read it. Because it has a lot of basic principles of, of what needs to happen and what debts are incurred and how they should be paid and, and then how the Lord involves himself when you look to him. But here it says in verse 1, it says, Now a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord. And the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. Now, what's the problem with the creditor? That's a problem. Okay. So he's, she is dealing with a wicked creditor who's going to come into her house and take her children to be slaves. What was he supposed to do? He was supposed to sustain them until they get back on their feet. Remember? So this is wickedness. This is one of the reasons why the Lord chased the land and kicked them out. So, Elisha doesn't, he doesn't address that. There's nothing he can do about a wicked creditor, but he can help this lady do what she needs to do. So look at verse 2. Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? So he's going to make some calculations and help her as she brings the Lord in on this whole thing. And she said, your maidservant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Verse 3. Then he said, go borrow vessels at large for yourself from all your neighbors, even empty vessels. Do not get a few. In other words, borrow as many jars as you can possibly lay your hands on. Go everywhere and ask to borrow empty jars. And she's probably thinking, oh my word, why do I even need to do this? But she does. And you shall go in, and you shut the door behind you, you and your sons, and pour out into all these vessels, and you shall set aside what is full. Verse 5, so she went from him, and shut the door behind her and her sons, and they were bringing the vessels to her, and she poured out of that jar of oil that she had. Verse 6, when the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not one vessel more. And the oil stopped. Then she came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil, pay your debt, and you and your sons can live on the rest. That's a marvelous story, isn't it? And there's a lot of things to pull out of that, and I think you can see that because we've been talking about these kinds of things. So they got in tr- she got in trouble, obviously. Husband died. You know, people... Death has a temporary dominion. People die. People you need to be in the family. People who are providers. The Lord takes them and you don't have what you need. It happens. And people are left 
uh, struggling. But when the Lord's in the middle of that, and we saw that, you know, what I thought was interesting, when I read the story every time, I, a certain one of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha. Now, it doesn't have any record of her crying out to the Lord. And I, and I think that had she cried out to the Lord first, perhaps there would have been a different outcome. Maybe Elisha wouldn't be impugned. He's kind of being, you know, hey, what are you going to do for me? You know, uh, I'm, I'm destitute and the creditor's going to come help me. But Elisha points her back to the Lord. Obviously, the supply from that oil is coming from the Lord. He, she keeps pouring out of that same jar she had and just keeps filling it up. So the Lord gets involved in those kinds of things. And when we call on him and we do it right and we say, okay, we're going to pay the debt and we're going to, you know, Elijah didn't say, well, just don't pay and, you know, move. No. Declare bankruptcy and then you don't have to pay anything to anybody even though you incurred all that debt. No. doesn't say any of that. It's just a very basic story that talks about the responsibilities of individuals to pay debt and to sell something perhaps to make sure that that happens so you're not behind. And then it shows the marvelous interaction of the Lord, as we talked about last time, where many people... We think about money as a pie, and you just kind of take out pieces until they're all gone, but that's not really how that works in the Scripture. I think it's more like a silo where you take the scoop out, and as you're honoring the Lord, there continues to be what you need in there. And many of you could stand up, and you could give testimony to that very thing. And even with small incomes over a long period of time, that you've never lacked for anything. In fact, not only you've not lacked for anything, you've had an abundance for every single good thing you needed to do no matter how small the income was. If you faithfully acknowledge the Lord and did what he said, and you've aligned yourself with these principles, you have found that to be the case. And I know not a number of you are shaking your head. You, you have seen that to be true. But from a testimony perspective, which we think is 2 Kings 4, you know, we should not be behind paying our debt. Elisha said, you're going to have to pay this. The Lord's going to help you. And, and have, we're not supposed to have outstanding debt that we're not paying. And then here's the, here's the wicked part. Turn around and spend what God has loaned you on something else instead of taking care of the debt that you incurred. That's wickedness. The wicked borrow and don't pay back. It's a testimony issue. It's one of the ways, the principles that God has planned for you, the second principle God has planned for you, the priority of the way you're supposed to use your money. Now, number three, we're to save a portion of our money. We're to save a portion. And one of the many passages that supports this priority is found in Proverbs 21.20. We looked at it already. There is precious treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man swallows it up. And we've already talked about this, so I don't want to go into it again. It's just consuming everything that comes in. But when we have arrived at this point, by using our questions from last week, you know, we have succeeded then in getting our spending under control because there's no way you're going to save anything if you're spending every dollar that comes in. You're spending, like, like I gave you that statistic in 2019, $1.30 for every dollar you make. That's the average American. 30 cents more for every dollar that they actually bring in. So you've got to get that under control, but you're not, you're going to get there by getting the spending under control and taking care of the needs of our family, because that's the first priority, and taking care of our debt so that we have a good testimony in the community. And if you've overextended yourself and it's not something you really, really needed and you can do with something different that would uh, provide uh, more room for you, then you need to be doing that. And you get to that point, we're getting able to set something back for the future, which still falls under the taking care of the needs of our family. Because your family needs to be provided for, and that could take a lot of forms as we look at. We won't go through it again. We've gone through all of this, but life insurance for the breadwinner. You know, if, if you, if you're the main breadwinner in your family and the Lord takes you, which he has every right to do if he wants to, how would your family do after that? And so, you know, these are kinds of things and other things that you can do to set aside some. It's not just a savings account. It can be, it can be investments. It can be you know, buying a house where they have a place to live. Those kinds of things are very important. So, and we're doing all of that. We're remembering that then. 
some of what we have, all of the, what we have belongs to God, but a certain amount is not to be spent on us at all. And that's where we get to priority number four. We are to, once you're at this point, so you're taking care of the needs of your family and you're taking care of your debt, settling it like you should because there's testimony things and you're, you're, uh, you're saving a portion because you've got those other two things under control. And then this last, this, this fourth one is we're to give generously and sacrificially what we have. You can't do any of that unless you're doing the other three. And the Lord's not looking at it with favor. If you've got outstanding debt, you're not paying it. You're not taking care of the needs of your family. If you haven't set anything aside for the future so that your family is taken care of for a time when you may not know is coming, then you're giving generously and sacrificially like the old, in the Old Testament where he said, you know, don't, don't come to the assemblies and don't come and, and give your sacrifice. That's not what I want. I want you to obey me and then come and do that. And so you can get to this point now and it might take you a while, beloved, to get to the point if your wealth's been mismanaged. If you're in a place where you're completely upside down and you're consuming everything that comes in and your your debt load is huge. But once you begin to scrutinize these spirit, because these are spiritual issues. And once you begin to, to scrutinize these spiritual issues, which overflow into the way you handle God's money and your life as a testimony in the workplace in the watching world, then you can get to the point where you can give faithfully and regularly and with planning to the ministry of the church. And we're going to see from Second Corinthians 8, 1 through 8, how that works. And mark this. We're going to see this very clearly. Giving is the normal action of believers. Giving is the normal action of believers. And some of the points we'll see, just foreshadowing a little bit in Second Corinthians 8, giving is controlled by grace. Giving isn't impacted by hardship. We're going to see all this. It's cool stuff. It's filled with joy. It's not hindered by a small income. You can see that. Because you can love money and have not very much of it. You can love money and have a lot of it. So it's not hindered either way. If you're managing it like the Lord wants you to manage it, it's able to have victory over double-mindedness, which just makes it generous and faithful. In other words, you committed to do something and you're going to do it. And it's going to be sacrificial, and so it's going to hurt a little bit. And you look at the end of the month, you think, if I didn't give that, I could have done X. When you can say that, if I didn't give this amount, I could have done this thing, which would have been cool you're at the point where you're sacrificial. And that could be any amount. We're not talking about a specific amount. We're just saying if it's sacrificial, it's going to hurt a little bit. And it honestly, we're going to see in 2 Corinthians 8, it's going to honestly evaluate the proportion based on what we receive. So it's going to say, what is our income, actual income, and then what should we be giving in proportion? It's willing to embrace sacrifice. It's intentional and voluntary. It realizes it's an opportunity, not an obligation. We're going to see that very clearly. It's worship. It prompts the expression of faith in other areas as well, because when you get this spiritual issue straight, it helps you worship the Lord in other areas too. And it doesn't have to be prompted by legalism. We looked at that right at the beginning. It doesn't have to be, well, you should be giving 10%, you should be giving 10%. But first of all, we know that that's a fallacy. The Old Testament doesn't teach that. But secondly, that's not the way that you're supposed to give by somebody berating you until you do. It's an act of worship. So on top of giving to advance the kingdom through the local church, we're supposed to give as God gives us opportunity to individuals who have immediate need and, and other worthy causes who have need. And we're going to see that as we work our way through. But not at the expense of giving through the local church. Because remember, the church in the New Testament is our model. That's the way it's supposed to be, that's the way it's supposed to work. And we do the rest with wisdom and liberty that God gives us. And our giving is a very important part of the life, of our life in both of these areas. And so we saw just from our look at the widow and her two copper coins, remember that whole story? I think it's important that you evaluate this because Jesus is. And just like he was watching the giving then, I think he's still doing it now. And he, he knows exactly what's going on. He knows exactly how much he's given you. And he knows what's going on and what you're doing with it. So 
We watch this very closely what happens here still. And, and, and there are some great examples of sacrificial giving in the scriptures, and we're going to look at some of them and spend our time remaining on what that looks like in the church context. And perhaps right at the end, if we have time today, we'll just, we'll look at a little bit of 2 Corinthians 8. But that's kind of the rest of what we have left. But it's interesting. Acts 2.45. See the same principles at work that the Lord instituted with his people Israel. This is early life in the church. Look what it says here as we think about what you have to share and set aside. Uh, it says, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with them all as anyone might have need. So in other words, they didn't hold too tightly to what the Lord had loaned them. It wasn't theirs. They knew it wasn't theirs. They had to do the things we talked about when they got to the point where uh, there was some need, they were able to meet it. And Acts 4.32, and the congregation, it says, of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. I don't think that that's communism in the way that we understand it now. It's not. Not even close. Okay? It's just that they understood that everything they owned came from the Lord. So it really wasn't theirs to begin with. And that's a reasonable thing to say. Okay? Many people say, well, see, there's communism. No. Not in the least. So, all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And abundant grace was upon them all. Verse 34, for there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sale and lay them at the apostles' feet and they would be distributed to each as any had need. So that's meeting immediate need. It's going through the local church and people realized they didn't own anything anyway and they had something left over after they took care of the needs of their family and they paid their debt. All, see, and this, this is how it looks when you've done that because you'll have provision for every good deed. We're going to see that in 2 Corinthians 8. And in the early church, if they had possessions and someone was in need, they could meet that, and they could meet that need, they would do it. That's precisely what we've been seeing over and over again. If you can meet the need, and you can afford to do that, and they have a need, then meet it. That's a very, very godly way to handle what you have, because everything you have comes from the Lord anyway. And, and for the most part, we saw early in our study that that's a lot different than most modern churches. They're, they're not doing this. They're not taking care of uh, immediate needs. They're not taking care of the needs inside the church. They're not uh, making sure that people have uh, what they really need to have. See, uh, Berean, I think, that's a really great example of it. And much goes on below the radar. I don't even know until afterwards that somebody met a need or somebody took care of somebody's need. It's just a marvelous thing that, to see from from my seat. But that's a lot different than most modern churches. In fact, uh, the Bible teaches that, here's the thing, meeting needs, if we're able, is one of the indicators that we're born again. Being able to meet immediate need and doing that is one of the indicators that we are actually converted. Because many of modern churches, their, their congregations are full of people who aren't even converted. Of course they're going to uh, be obsessed with money and things. And I think that's the point of 1 John 3.17. If you think it's an indicator of being born again, that, that's, that's the whole point here. Whoever has the world's goods sees his brother in need, and closes his heart to him, how does the love of God abide him? And that's a rhetorical question. What is it? It doesn't. It doesn't. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth we will know this, that we are of the truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth and, and will assure our heart before him. So one of the many reasons why disciples, uh, discipleship is so vitally important when somebody comes to faith it's one of the things we have to, we have to talk about when you lead somebody to faith. One of the things you talk about is how you manage what you have, because it reveals to the one who has professed faith just exactly what following Jesus means. It means he owns it all, and and the reality of a biblical worldview of money is that everything you have comes from him because he owns the world and everything in it. 
And for those who have trusted Christ as Savior as it relates to material wealth, this is going to be a significant departure from how you looked at it before. Wealth is a stewardship. All of it belongs to him, not just what we give. All of it belongs to him. And so we, we must use it for his glory and, and taking care of our families as a testimony and paying our bills on time as we agreed to do it. That's a testimony and making sure we set some aside for the future. And that's our testimony because it's foolishness if we don't. And then making sure we're able to give and do it generously. See. Now I'd like you to look with me at Luke chapter 16, if you would. We're going to kind of bring it this to a point and open up, uh, second Corinthians 8 here in just a minute. But look at Luke chapter 16, verse 1. This, uh, this is a very important passage concerning how believers use money. That's precisely what the story is about. And Jesus is going to tell this story um, about a rich man who had a manager. And this may be a parable. This may be a real story. It's not really clear at this point what it is. It's irrelevant, though, because the point is going to be very clear. And so look at verse 1 of Luke chapter 16. I'd like you to read this with me, if you would, please. Don't just let me read it to you. Read this and see it and understand it. Okay? Now, he was also saying to the disciples, so Jesus is teaching, it's a teachable moment, and again, uh, the most important topic he taught about, the one that he talked about most, was money. And again, he's doing it here. There was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. So what's going on? So there's a wealthy guy, he's got somebody who's managing his affairs, and that guy who's managing his affairs is being unfaithful with what he's been entrusted with. I think you know where we're going and where he's going with this, but we'll keep reading. And verse 2, he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be my manager. In other words, you're fired, but before you go out, I want to know what you did with all my money. Because you're in trouble. So there's some, perhaps, uh, thought of some legal action. Perhaps, you know, you're going to spend some time in prison. You're going to be repaying. So the guy's panicked. He knows he's been caught. He hasn't been using the money like he should. He's been squandering it. It all belonged to the wealthy man. And he was, this guy was squandering it. So, look at verse 3. The manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me. I'm not strong enough to dig. And I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. So that when I'm removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. Verse 5. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors. And he began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? Verse 6. And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And so the manager said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. Verse 7. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. Now, did the manager have a right to do this? Was it his money? No. Did he have a right to do it? No. So you kind of get the idea of why he's getting canned to begin with. Okay? He's got a crooked mind. He's going to pad his own wallet. He's getting booted. And he's still making sure this happens. But he's got something in mind, doesn't he? He's like, I'm going to get booted out. I've got no place to go. And I'm going to have no income. But I'm going to have some place to live. Where's he planning on living? All these people who now had their debts reduced. Now look at verse 8. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he acted shrewdly. Isn't that interesting? He's getting canned, but the manager's like, dude, that was smart. You provided for yourself. For later. You still can't. 
And so the master praised the unrighteous manager because he acted shrewdly. For the sons, now catch this, now we're going to move into the reason why Jesus is telling this story. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. Unbelievers, unfortunately, are more astute on how, to wor- how the world works than believers are in how God works. That's the whole point. And then he explains himself. Verse 9. I say to you, Make friends for yourself by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. So in other words, we are to use God's money in a way that will advance the kingdom and see people come to Christ. The wicked man in his parable provided for himself for a time of, a time of coming hardship. We're supposed to see the coming time of reckoning or accounting and be wise in the way we handle God's money. That's the whole issue. See, the wicked know how to make that happen, but the righteous don't. The wicked are more astute in how the world works than godly people are in how God works. And what was the whole problem with the original manager? He was squandering the manager's possessions. Guess who is the focus of this teaching? Believers who squander what the Lord has given. And how do we know that? Well, look at look at verse 10. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Now, if if uh, somebody said that in the world, I would just say, well, that's a really great little saying. But when Jesus says it, it's, it's, it's an axiom. You can bet for sure that that's the case. If you are faithful in a little thing, you'll be faithful in a lot of things. And if you are unrighteous in a very little thing, you're going to be unrighteous in much. And it just applies across the board. But in particular here, it applies to mon- how you manage money. Now look at verse 11. Therefore... And here's how he pulls the whole thing together. If you've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust true riches to you? And that's how he ties back to the wicked manager. You and me, if we're not faithful in unrighteous wealth, who's going to entrust true riches to you? What are true riches? And we looked at this several weeks ago. Spiritual gifts, spiritual fruit evidence in your life, successful ministry, souls of people, spiritual influence. Spiritual leadership. These are true riches, aren't they? These are the ones that travel with you to heaven. These are the money bags that don't wear out. These are the things that bring glory to the Lord for eternity because you were faithful in doing those things. If you have a spiritual problem with unrighteous wealth and you squander it, you're not going to have any of these other things, see? And God doesn't appear to be inclined to give true riches to us if we haven't demonstrated the ability to handle unrighteous wealth. We're not smart enough to figure out how God works, and not even as smart as the, as the world figures out how the world works, then that's a shame, isn't it? Especially when he's been so clear. And that's the point of this next statement. Look at verse 12. So he just pulls it right in. He says, if you've not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who, who owns it? Who owns what you have in your pocket right now and in your bank account? The Lord. If you've not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? In other words, if you're just as irresponsible as the wicked man in the parable who was squandering his master's riches, why would you be trusted with more? That's the point. Verse 13, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and wealth. You've got to make a decision. Who are you going to serve? See, And the indication here is discovered in how you handle material things. That shows who you're going to serve. And now, There's much to that story. I would encourage you to go back and ponder that and ask the Lord to give you understanding. 
and how you've managed what he's given you up till now. And we've given you lots of principles and priorities, and you can assimilate that, I know, and, and the Holy Spirit will give you wisdom. Read that passage and, and, and take in those things and learn from them. Now, in the time we have left, I want to get our feet wet back in our passage in 2 Corinthians 8. And I just have a few minutes, and that's all I'm going to take. But as you begin to turn there, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, look there if you would. I'd like us to consider five things based on, really, this grace-based summary of spiritual instructions for material things that we've covered so far. I'd like, I want you to think about five things uh, that you can make a commitment to do. Of course, this is between you and the Lord. Here it is. Number one, allow God to be the sole owner of my wealth. You understand that it belongs to him anyway, but this is this is a volitional response. Allow God to be the sole owner of my wealth. Entire control belongs to him. Lord, I give it all to you. It's yours anyway. Number two, agree that the purpose of my life is to advance the kingdom, to bring him glory. That is the purpose of your life. You do know that, right? You were chosen to bring about the advancement of the kingdom here on earth. That is your main job. Everything else you have to do, and the Lord knows you need to work and provide for the needs of your family, but your main job is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. See, the Lord takes care of you in whatever way he decides to do that. So use all that I have and all that I am to advance the kingdom. That's your prayer. Number three, arrange my life in such a way so that I can respond to God's direction. What's that mean? Lord, I won't live to the limits of my income. I won't keep accruing consumer debt, going out to eat and lavish vacations, all that stuff. You don't have anything to show for that, and you have a huge credit card bill that you've got to pay back. Uh, if I'm overextended, I'm going to sell what I need to sell and get back in balance. So I want to arrange my life in such a way so that I can respond to God's direction. Number four, assess the value of all my giving as investing in eternity. Realize that everything that you give is investing in money belts that don't wear out. Don't think you can take it with you? You sure can. When you invest in money belts that don't wear out, that is a portfolio that never fades away. And number five, appreciate and anticipate that God will return what I give in a greater and more bountiful measure. It's not you imposing on God. It's not you saying, okay, God, now I want you to bless me because I've, I've given. See, you're not putting words in God's mouth. See, he's already said that's precisely what he's going to do. Now, I'll stay there just for a second as you write. Hopefully you're there at 2 Corinthians 8.1. You can sum that up however the prayer works for you. But that's my prayer for you. If you want to really respond in grace, just respond this way. I'm not saying you should give a certain amount. Not, I don't know what your incomes are. I don't know how, how you're, how you're uh, spread thin or, or whether you're not. It, it doesn't have anything to do with me. It has to do with how you're going to respond to what we've talked about. And you can make these commitments to the Lord and just say, Lord, help me to do these things. Follow your your guidance in this area. I want you to be a sole owner of my wealth. You're going you're gonna to know what what shape that's going to take in your life. And and you, you're going to have to agree that the purpose of your life is to advance the kingdom. You're not here. I mean, you may work your way up the ladder. There's nothing wrong with that. You may be in a place where you're over a lot of people. You, great. You, should, you may have a lot of influence. That's fantastic purpose of your life is to advance the kingdom. All these other things are part of what the Lord's provided in his richness for you through your ability to think and your, your knowledge, perhaps your, your skill, whatever it is. You arrange your life in such a way you can respond to God's direction. What's that mean? That you can do what he's asked you to do with the wealth that some of it doesn't belong to you. So these are things that are very important, and let me encourage you to do that. Now look at Second Corinthians chapter 8 and look at verse 1. So we know these things. Now we can read this, and we're not going to go, what? Because kind of that's what we did the first time we read it. 
oh, that, how could I possibly do this? Here's what they say. So Paul comes to Macedonia. He, there's a lot of trouble on these believers. We understand that in context. And, and he comes here and he sees what's going on and he wants to write. And he says this. He says to the Corinthians, because he's in Macedonia, difficult time, he says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. So the grace of God is active. So they're responding in grace in an opportunity that they have, which is what we just said. That's one of the things we're going to do. That in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty, so the affliction, and in the middle of affliction they have joy, and they don't have much by way of material things, Overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Now that doesn't make sense, does it? They didn't have much. They were under a difficult. They were in a difficult time. They had great joy, and they were very liberal with what they had. Why? Because they were living within their means, and taking care of whatever debt they had, and they had some to give away, didn't they? So there's no way you can do any of that if you've overextended yourself. For I testify that according to their ability, so within within the means of their income and beyond. Their ability. So as he looked at them, I don't, how would you even do that? I'm not even sure. They gave of their own accord. So it was willing. They were joyfully doing it. Marked us, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. So not only were they saying, yeah, I'll give. They're like, what can we do? How can we be involved with this ministry? Now, when you read that, I, I want to ask you a question now. I've asked you this before. It's been quite a few years ago. What is it about church that you look forward to the most? Pre-COVID, right? We should go back to church somewhere. It wasn't like this. But as you uh, as you think about coming to church, what aspect about it is most appealing to you? And and after COVID, I was just thrilled that we could be back together. So it was very very simple for me. But I'm thinking more about ministry and worship. You know, one perhaps you participate in, maybe one you're you're minister to. Uh, by, uh, you know, a small group of Bible study. Maybe it's the music. I'm sure Alex would hope that that be the case with some. Maybe it's fellowship time. Maybe it's Acts 246. Maybe it's bistro. Maybe it's prayer time on Wednesday with, with uh, those who are dear to you and you can get together with them. Maybe it's, maybe it's Awana that you work in or, or the Awana you attend or teen group. Uh, maybe it's the sermon. Maybe it's a teaching time or the ministry you do sometime during the week or the communion with the Lord that you feel while you're here. I mean, maybe I hit on one. Maybe I didn't. Maybe it's, there's other things. Maybe it's a combination of things, but if, if we understand that passage correctly, there's one thing that should make it at the top of the list. What is it? The offer. You knew I was going to say that. Now you knew I was going to, okay, now he's going to talk about the offer. It, and here's the thing, if we really understand the Lord correctly, if we only went with a few statements from Jesus, and we know there are way more than just a few, to help us understand the remarkable attitude of the Macedonian believers, we would look forward to the offering where we could give and give generously. And, and the first of just two statements we will remind ourselves of in the time remaining help us understand that mindset of the Corinthian believers. The first one is found in Acts 20, verse 35, where the Apostle Paul is speaking to the elders of the church of Ephesus. And, and the statement is really remarkable because it's the only place outside the four Gospels where Jesus is actually quoted. Now, of course, Jesus is the Word, made flesh. So the whole of the scripture is the recording of his words. So I'm not trying to make an inordinate point by saying that this is the only place outside the Gospels. I'm just saying, of all the things Jesus said in different situations, and John 21, 25 tells us there were a lot of things we don't know, and many other things which Jesus did, if they were written in detail, I suppose not even the whole world itself could contain the books that would be written. So there's lots of stuff that happened, 
That's not surprising to us. While Jesus was on earth, it didn't get recorded. God didn't see fit for us to know it. But we see in John that that's the case. But the statements quoted from the mouth of Jesus, all of them are in the Gospels except for this statement. Acts 20, verse 35. These are, these are these two that I want you to look at. If we understood these at all, and if we understood anything about what we just said about the Macedonian believers who begged us with much urging for the favor of participation and support of the saints, then this passage right here should help us understand that the offering should be the most important thing and the thing we look forward to the most. In everything, I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus. So Paul is saying goodbye to the Ephesians. He's not going to see them again. He's giving them some parting words. He's recounting some of the ministry he had. And then he says, and I told you, you need to work hard, help the weak, remember the words of Jesus that he himself said. And here's a quote from Jesus, which we don't have anywhere except here. It is more blessed to give than it is to receive. And you can imagine why this is such an astounding statement, because it sounds so opposite of what we would have supposed to be true, right? Because in actuality, Jesus told Paul, sometime during his training time, what you give away brings you greater blessing than what you receive. The biggest blessing is going to come in relation to your generosity. Now, everybody knows it's wonderful to receive. We learn that as kids at Christmas time, don't we? And your kids know this, and they look forward to it. But Jesus says even better than that is to give. And, and mark this, if that were the all that was said about giving, if that was it, and we looked right there and Paul says this, if that was all that was said, that would, beloved, be enough to make it our favorite part of church. Can you agree with me on that? If that's the only thing, if Jesus said this, which he did, and that's all we had, would that be enough? Do you see what I'm saying? If Jesus says it's more blessed to give than receive, then it is more blessed to give than receive. And apparently, the church in Macedonia got that message, didn't they? But it isn't the only remarkable thing. Look at this one. In Luke chapter 6, verse 38. Jesus says, Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, for by your standard of measure... It will be measured to you in return. So in other words, as we said numerous times and pointed out over and over in the scriptures, God will give to you in proportion to what you give. And not only that, but he'll use the same measuring implement that you use. So if you're using a big old scoop, that's what he uses. If you're using a tiny little scoop, a teaspoon, that's what he uses. However, whatever you use... He's going to press it down and pack it tightly and cause it to overflow. So even in your stinginess, he's not going to be stingy. But he's going to use the same implement. If those are the only two statements in all of the scripture, and you know they're not because we've spent ten messages talking about other statements, that would be enough. And it's very interesting here. Whatever you give, you receive a lot more back. That's You can't come away from that passage with any other understanding. And this is Jesus speaking. When you give, Jesus said, God will fill into your lap overflowing. So be generous in giving, and results that results in greater generosity to you from God. And that's, a, that's an amazing thing. And that's a very direct path of blessing from the Lord. And we didn't put those words in his mouth. That's his words to us. And you know this isn't new stuff. And we've seen this all through the scriptures. So back to that first question that should make the offering the most favorite part of church. Because of the great expectation of the understanding of these two verses will generate. 
If it's more blessed to give than receive, Jesus' own words, and given will be given to you, pour in your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, for by your standard of measure to be measured to you in return, then that should generate a lot of excitement for that part of worship. Right? Now, apparently, and certainly unfortunately, and really sorrowfully, we saw when we started the study, it appears that many Christians, the majority, do not believe that promise. Either of them. Just got to be real about that. So it's no surprise that the offering is not their favorite part of church. And this really becomes a matter of faith. They don't believe God's promises in this area. Or they would give. It's a really sad but obvious conclusion, and it can't be anything else. So instead of giving, we hoard, or we become selfish, irresponsible, self-indulgent, because we don't believe the Word of God. We get all we can, we can all we get, and sit on the can. But again, beloved, these, these are spiritual issues of faith and trust and belief. These are very clear passages. And we either believe them and we act on them, or we don't believe them and we don't act on them, because if we truly believed, as the Macedonians obviously did, there would be no reason not to act. It's the biblical worldview of material things. If we believe there's more blessing in giving than receiving, what do we do? We give. If we believe that when we give, God gives back more, then we give. And of course, as we've seen over the last several months, it's also an issue of obedience. As the Lord has clearly said, some of it doesn't belong to you and you shouldn't be using it for you anyway. So believe, trust, and obey. These are really keys to all of the Christian life, aren't they? It's no different here. We believe that Jesus had to suffer for our sins, do we not? We trust that the blood he shed was sufficient to wash our sin away. We believe God when he says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. We are obedient and we repent and we confess and we are born again and we obey the commands of Jesus and so confirm that relationship to him and give him an opportunity to work through us. So this is its not new stuff here, is it? Believe the promises of God, obey his commands. It's always the same. See, And here we have this issue, but we are so in love with material things that we ignore this issue and betray the very base part of our nature. Give, that's a command, followed by a promise, and it will be given to you. Pour in your lap, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. In everyday life, our actions are controlled by what we believe to be true. That is our worldview if you will, and it's the same here, and, and, and so to not do it is really a twofold sin issue. Not to give is a sin because you won't obey a direct command from the Lord. And it's a sin because God, against God because you don't trust Him. You won't obey the direct command and you don't trust Him to do what He said He's going to do. Now, we're going to wrap up with this. The great thing about these chapters in Second Corinthians is this. We are going to see Believers who obeyed God and trusted his promises. And that's why they have become the standard for New Testament giving. And we're going to look at them next time we're together. We're out of time this morning, but I think it's a great stopping point. And when we're back together, we've laid the foundation we need for these passages. You can see that, I think.
Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer, if you would. Lord, we thank you today for a, a great time to be together. We think I thank you for the fellowship of the saints, the joy that's in my own heart when we come together, when when our folks come in and we we encourage one another and and greet one another and love each other and meet each other's needs. And and Lord, we look forward to a time where we can expand even more back into some of the things we've been doing, which allow us to be uh, closer to one another and interacting with each other. But Lord, for what we have and for the worship we're doing. I very simply like the first church coming together, reading your word, giving, praying, singing. So we're grateful for that, Father. Grateful that we can do it, that our constitution has guaranteed it, but more than that, that you've given us uh, the the, uh, the instruction to do it and we obey you. So Lord, I pray that as we looked at many things today, and there's over the last several weeks a lot of instruction we've taken in which has perhaps assaulted many of the ivory towers we have set up in our own mind and the ways we think things should work and how and it, we, maybe we've our own conscience has been betrayed because we've followed after what the world says. And that last passage out of Luke is just so powerful as you, uh, through your son, gave us this instruction about a manager and a wealthy businessman. And we know that that describes us sometimes in our life. We've done that very thing. And so I pray that we'll be wise about the way that you work. And even if those two promises we just saw, the only two in the all, of, all of the scriptures, that's enough. Let it be enough, Father, for us to follow and do what you say. Thank you again for the time we'll have as we depart from here to be a good witness, faithful, not sequestered in our home to the point that we're not witnessing to our neighbors and the people we come in contact with. But Lord, our life is yours and it is to be used to further the kingdom. And Father, I pray that we'll realize that, make that our commitment, and that we will allow you to be the sole owner of what we have and arrange our life in such a way that we can respond to your direction. And all of this that we do as we give, we're investing in eternity. And we can appreciate as we read these two promises that everything that we give, you'll return in a greater and more bountiful measure because that's who you are and that's how you are. And so we rejoice in all of that. And we thank you again for the time we can be together. For those who are with us online, we pray that they'll walk with you, put these principles to work, and begin to do the things you ask for them to do. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen.